Um, we just started Zechariah on Wednesday. I'd like to draw your attention to that book as we take a small text on Sunday morning from our upcoming Wednesday. So turn with me to Zechariah chapter three. Wednesday night, we started looking at chapter one. We didn't quite finish chapter one. We did if you're reading the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible in chapter one goes to verse 17. And then uh, chapter two begins in verse 18 of chapter one. That's in the Hebrew Bible. So we did kind of finish chapter one, depending on your perspective. But there's a reason it sort of breaks there. It's because um, Zachariah is having eight different visions or dreams um, and some of them are pretty crazy. Like he, it's like, uh, he must've had some pretty spicy pizza before he went to bed because he had some serious dreams. All in one night, he had eight visions uh, or dreams, but they're um, not just the pizza. It's actually, he was uh, given those dreams, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write them down in the, and it made the Bible, the canon of scripture. And you'll see why. These dreams are powerful and important. Um, and so uh, we did look at the first dream on, on Wednesday. We'll try to get in the rest of the eight uh, this coming Wednesday. But I'd like to fast forward to uh, vision uh, number four of the eight here in chapter three, verse one. Let's read together. It says in Zechariah 3, one, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him And unto him, he said, behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. And I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Excuse me, verse five. And I said, let them set a fair mitre or turban as some of your translations say. A turban, mitre on his head. So they set a fair mitre, excuse me, upon his head and clothed him with the garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. It's funny, whenever we talk about Satan, I get that tickle in my throat, cough. (laughs) It's the demonic tickle. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, um, don't mind me. Uh, But all that to say, here we have an interesting scene um, and and it's this uh, courtroom scene. We're we're into courtroom scenes, it seems, as a culture. Have you noticed, everybody's watching the Johnny Depp trial and we love, you know, the O.J. Simpson trial and all these trials that come and go. It's like we, we get really kind of obsessed but this is a trial that's worth looking at right here. Um, criminals, uh, you know, are interesting when you, when you see them in, on trial and hear their stories. Um, one of my favorite things to do is read stories about the dumb criminals. There's a lot of dumb criminals uh, that kind of crack me up. One of my favorites, in San Francisco, a man walked into a downtown Bank of America and he took one of their deposit slips, you know, uh, and he wrote on there, uh, this is a stick up, put all your Manny in this bag. And he spelled it um, with M-A-N-Y. Uh, and he wasn't really the brightest criminal, you know. Um, put all your money in this bag. So he's standing in line at the, at the uh, Bank of America, but he starts thinking, I wonder if somebody saw me write the note. And so he got a little nervous, and so he, he kind of went and left out of the Bank of America and went across the street to the Wells Fargo, um, and he waited in line there. And when he got to the teller, he handed the teller this note, 
And she, reading his spelling was a little off, realized he probably wasn't the sharpest, uh, you know, uh, knife in the drawer kind of thing. So she said, oh, I'm so sorry, sir. You can't, we can't do this with a Bank of America. You'll need to fill this out on a Wells Fargo deposit. Like <laughs> quick thinking teller, you know. Um, <laughs> well, looking somewhat defeated, the man said, okay. And he left the Wells Fargo Bank. Um, the teller then called the police who arrested him a few minutes later as he was waiting in line back at Bank of America. <laughs> Uh, great story. Another one, um, a guy, um, he, he rubbed lemon juice on his face and then he went and robbed a bunch of Pittsburgh banks all in broad daylight. He didn't wear a mask or any disguise. He would smile at the surveillance cameras as he'd go by. Um, but uh, MacArthur Wheeler, when they finally came to his house, like an hour and a half after he'd robbed all these banks, they went right to his house and uh, arrested him and he said, how did you know it was me? Uh, he, he said, and they said, we got you on surveillance video. We saw your face. And in total disbelief, he said, but I wore the juice. He thought, somebody told him that if he wore lemon juice, um, that that would sort of disguise his image, um, you know, as a criminal uh, and that he would be unseeable. Uh, um, one more, this is actually one that happened fairly recently. There was a, there was a uh, news reporter doing a live stream video for the news station there in Cairo, Egypt, when he was just holding his camera out like this, his phone, when a guy comes and th grabs his phone, he rides by on a motorcycle and he grabs this, this video, uh, uh, this news reporter's camera right out of their, um, right out of his hand. The problem was there were more than 20,000 people watching this live video there in Egypt. There's the guy grabbing the camera. Uh, now he's riding off with his cigarette on his, on his motorcycle. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha, I got a camera. Um, but the funny thing is the 20,000 viewers that were texting and, and messaging, viewers joked the man shouldn't have bothered looking behind him because the whole world is watching you. He's like, you know, you're busted. And they arrested him a few hours later because they could identify who he was. People are kind of stupid. Um, and uh, the thing that's funny is we all are sort of uh, guilty of sin and we are gonna end up in what we would call God's courtroom. Uh, that's an important thing to understand. And the question is, what's gonna happen when you stand in God's courtroom, if you would? Um, and that's kind of what we see here in our text. Um, we see um, Joshua, the high priest, standing in the courtroom, if you would, of heaven. Um, we all need to kind of start out realizing we've all fallen short, we've all sinned, and we're all guilty. Um, in 520 BC, when this happens, um, Israel kind of had this attitude and their attitude was they didn't realize how sick and sinful they really were. They thought of themselves as basically good, that they were generally okay and that, you know, God wouldn't be mad at us. So we worship Baal and Ashtoreth and these other gods and goddesses, but we also go to the temple and still worship, you know, Jehovah, the God of the Jews. And they had this worldview that said, we're basically good, kind of like today where a lot of people today think, you know, you're, you're a good person and, and, you know, everything's great and humanity is, we are the world, you know, and, and we are the people and uh, all that. And, and that's just a huge lie. We're all a bunch of sinners, according to the Bible. So we see this courtroom scene in, in the fourth vision of Zechariah. And let's, let's go over just, if you would, the, the key characters of this courtroom scene. Um, and the first key character that we look at here is the judge in the story, and that is God himself. And when I say God, we, we wanna be clear, Jehovah. In fact, when you look at this, it's, you'll see the word Lord uh, in verse uh, two, and the Lord said unto Satan. That word Lord is Jehovah because it's in the capital L-O-R-D, all caps. Whenever you see that, that's that word 
um, the YHWH, the great tetragrammaton of the book of Exodus. Remember, I am that I am. And when the Jews would write down the name of God, it was so holy that they would leave the vowels out. Uh, and so we don't really even know how to pronounce the name of God. Uh, Brett, I do, it's Jehovah. Um, and others will say, no, it's Yahweh. Uh, and others might say, Yubuhu. Uh, I don't know, whatever you wanna do, but we don't know. Uh, and you can say you know, but we really don't. Even the uh, most uh, 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 knowledgeable Hebrew uh, scholars uh, kind of have to admit, we don't really for sure know how to pronounce the name of God as it turns out. So you can say Jehovah um, if you want to, or Yahweh, and um, don't send me letters. I, every time I say that, people wanna argue about that point, uh, especially if you're like a Jehovah's Witness or something. Um, uh, first of all, leave the Jehovah's Witness faith and come to the Bible. That's just what I would say about that. Um, but uh, the word Jehovah or Yahweh, that, we're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true and living God. He is the judge in the courtroom scene. And this is important because the Bible actually talks to us about who this judge is. In fact, Psalm 7 nails it down uh, pretty powerfully. The psalmist says this, God is a righteous judge. Um, that means he's perfect. He doesn't make bad decisions. But this is where it gets kind of ominous and scary. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword he has bent and readied his bow. The idea, God is postured for attack, for warfare. Does that sound scary? I mean, if you really think about it, God, who's all powerful, is whipping out the sword that's sharpened and ready, and he's bending the bow ready for battle for the person who's not repentant of their sins. That's the posture of God, the righteous judge to the sinner. Is that a good position to be in? Well, man, I don't want anything to do with that. I'd rather be on the good side of God. I don't want God bending his bow or wetting his sword, as it says here, against me. Um, so there's good news. Even in this little tiny verse, we find if a man does not repent, then that's what's gonna happen. So repentance is the key. That a person repent of their sins. The word repent means to change direction and change your mind, to acknowledge that you're a sinner before God. Repentance does not mean perfection. If repentance meant for perfection, like if you repent and you're perfect, question, who gets to go to heaven? Nobody, because we can repent, but we still find ourselves struggling with sin and making mistakes. And we might even make the same mistake over and over again. Does that keep us out of heaven? No, repentance means to, to, that you know, we change our mind about sin and we fight against sin, of course. We don't wanna you know, take hold of sin willfully, joyfully, purposefully, but we're, we're trying to live our lives for the Lord. So you change your mind about sin, repentance. If a man does not repent, the sword comes out, the bow gets drawn, and God, the righteous judge, man, that's a scary image. And the thing about God, don't forget this, he knows all and he sees all. Um, you know, he's not a judge that we can dupe and say, oh, I didn't do anything. The police officer was wrong. I'm sure none of you guys have spent much. I've spent a little time in traffic court, just confession. Um, uh, and it's always a bummer, you know, cause you try to go and, you know, state your case and all this stuff. But I've learned over the years, only the few times I've been there, um, <laughs> that, you know, I've, I've watched people and the way they approach judges. Have you ever noticed this? It's kind of funny. In fact, going to traffic court is entertaining when you just see um, how people are. Some people are really kind of crazy. They, they sort of saunder up to the podium when it's their turn and act like, we got a thing to say to the judge. 
That's a bad way to approach. Like you lose right there, I guarantee it. Like your mother never told you, you know, you don't say, yo, bro, that's not how you address the, the judge. You say, you say, your honor, uh, because you realize the judge is a, in a position to change your future. Uh, what you're gonna have to do. And he's kind of gonna say it one way or the other. And, and so to go up there with a bad attitude, it's amazing how many people do. Um, I was only going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Um, that's not gonna be a good argument. Uh, it's amazing the arguments you hear in traffic court and the disrespect. Now, um, I've noticed though, this is just a freebie for you guys. If you go in sort of with a broken and a contrite spirit and you kind of admit, see, this is, this is probably bad, but I have an attitude like this. When a police officer pulls me over, in my mind, this is the way I think. Uh, I think, man, I deserve every bit of this ticket he's about to give me because he didn't see even the way I was driving yesterday. Like, <laughs> like if they only knew all the stuff that I, like I'm guilty as charged and probably worse than he even knows. Like that's truly my, cause I do, I, I do like driving, I just like confession. Uh, so, so when I go, I just say, officer, you're totally right, man. And I was speeding, but it's amazing. I'm not trying to manipulate anything, but a lot of times police officers will kind of change their attitude a little bit when they realize, oh yeah, he realizes he's a total goofball and was messing up. It's amazing how things happen there. But if you say, what are you doing? I wasn't doing anything wrong. That's a lose-lose. Worse still when you're standing before the judge. Um, See, that's the idea of repentance. When you and I, it's not the traffic court that we're worried about, it's the courtroom of heaven. And for somebody to say, I haven't done anything, I'm a basically good person. Why do bad things happen to good people, God? Is that the attitude we should look at? Or should we say, oh, there are no good people and we're all sinners and we all deserve everything we get. But good news, we all, not only do we serve a righteous judge, we also serve a compassionate judge kind-hearted, merciful judge. That's the good news, especially, well, for the next person of our characters. We see the, the judge who's God. The second one, we see the accused, which is Joshua. Um, or you'd say Yeshua in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament times. That was the name of Jesus, Yeshua, same name. But this is not the Joshua or the Yeshua of the book of Exodus. You remember Moses and Joshua? That was Joshua, the son of Nun. You say, what, he didn't have any parents? No, um, his dad's name was Nun, N-U-N. So, so Joshua, the son of Nun, that's the guy that was with Moses and led the people of Israel into the promised land. That's that Joshua. He fit the battle of Jericho. That's that Joshua. This is a Joshua that came you know, hundreds of years later who was actually the uh, high priest in Jerusalem at the time where Haggai and Zechariah and all those guys were there reminding the people, you gotta finish the temple and all this stuff. And he would be the, the high priest during that time. Now the high priest for the Jews was uh, God's representative to man, but also man's representative to God. The high priest was the one who would sort of act on behalf of the people, but speak on the behalf of, on the behalf of God. And, and he was, uh, you know, pulled out to be set aside, consecrated, holy, uh, to represent the people. And if he was a big sinner, the people were in big trouble. Do you remember the, the, the most important day of the year for the Jews was that one day. Does anybody remember, what's the day where everybody, see, not like our day in the church age, but in their day, there was a single day where they'd all have their sins forgiven. Does anybody remember, what was that day called? Yes, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, as it's called. And on Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement, the priest would go through all the Jewish uh, legal rituals and, and, and you know, the sacrifices and the changing of garments and all kinds of things that he'd go through, the high priest. 
And on that one day, he would go there into the holy place where he'd stand before the uh, table of showbread and the altar of incense and the candlestick. And he would worship and, and uh, beseech uh, God on behalf of the people. And then, then, this was the scary part. The high priest would then move from the holy place into the holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the uh, Shekinah glory of God dwelt over the mercy seat of the Ark. It was a visible, the Hebrew word is kabod, the weightiness of God's presence was there in the Holy of Holies. And the, the priest, he, he needed to have his, his, uh, his life and his, uh, his situation kind of intact or else he could be in real trouble. Um, if you didn't do what God told you to do and if you didn't do it right, you could end up dead real fast. Do you remember as they were, David was trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and Uzzah was driving the cart with the, an Ohio, Ohio guy and they were driving along in the cart was the Ark of the Covenant, but the oxen sort of jerked the cart and the Ark of the Covenant started to slip off and Uzzah reached back and touched the Ark of the Covenant and man, he died right there uh, because they weren't doing things by the protocols of the, of the Levitical law of the priests. It was that grave. So suddenly the high priest is like, man, I hope we got our sacrifices right. I hope we did everything. Hope I'm, I'm dialed in right now because if I go into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God and they only got to do, the, the one guy got to go into the Holy of Holies one time a year, that was it. Well, what was the point of that? Well, there, the high priest, this case, Joshua, he would go in and he would worship God before the Ark of the Covenant and the, and the holiness of God would be there. And he'd spend time in there, um, giving glory to the God of gods, the true and living God. Then, toward the end of the day, and by this time, by the way, the whole day was very somber, the day of, of atonement, very somber day until the high priest would emerge out of the holy place, out of the holy place, back out into the courtyard, and he'd stand on the steps there of the temple, and he'd cry out to all of Israel, and he'd say, your sins are forgiven or atoned for. And man, that's when the party started. And man, the Jews would just celebrate from that point on. Big feasts, all kinds of music would be played. That's where it was excited. Everybody's excited because their sins were forgiven. And for the next year, they're good to go. That was the way of the Old Testament. So you have to understand the high priest was the best they had to offer. It'd be almost like we'd say, okay, this is our best, cleanest, most holy dude we've got. And we're gonna send him into the Holy Holies and he's gonna represent us. And so you'd say, gulp, here we go, day of atonement. The high priest goes in, I hope he's, he's, hope he's not having an affair with the neighbor's wife. Hope he's not you know, uh, skimming money and greedy. Uh, hope he's not, you know, cause that's the kind of, it was, it was a grave situation. So for the people to hear this prophecy of the vision of Zechariah, to hear that there's this courtroom scene and God the judge is there and they see their high priest Joshua as the accused, oh dear, that's a problem. You're in trouble, you're in big trouble. Cause not only is Joshua there, but what's he wearing? This would have shocked them. Um, when he, the, you read verse three, where it says, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. This would have been unthinkable to the Jews. Our high priest wearing filthy garments. In fact, it even says there, the Lord speaks to Satan and says, the Lord rebuke thee, um, O Satan. Uh, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem, by the way, this should end the Arab-Israeli conflict right there. God chose Jerusalem. Who's the one who should get Jerusalem? The Palestinians? Nope. The Jews? Nope. The Lord. 
The Lord says, Jerusalem is mine. He puts his name on it. And then he says, I want the Jews to dwell there. So kind of interesting, a sideline there. Um, but I digress. Um, the Lord rebuked thee. The one who's chosen Jerusalem rebuked thee. He says, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? And if you think about a brand, that'd be just a little dry twig that's thrown into the fire and it was about to burn, but instead it was plucked out of the fire and saved. Um, and that's what he's saying sort of rhetorically. Isn't this Joshua thy priest, the one that was headed for hell and to be burned, but we've plucked him out? Is not this the one that we've plucked out so that he wouldn't be burned? But there he is. That's what the Lord does, by the way. He plucks us out of the fires of hell. That's, that's how you're saved. But, but we learn more about that as we keep reading because there he is wearing filthy garments. Now, um, the word filthy, um, the unfortunate thing is the translators of the Bible cleaned the word up. Um, if you go to the original text of the Hebrew, you would be shocked even like the Jews. So here's their pristine high priest, the guy that's supposed to be you know, cleaner than everybody else. I mean, think about the most holy person you know. Um, and picture them being splattered with what? Well, filth. But if you look up the Hebrew word, I'm just gonna tell you, the Hebrew word is tso or tsoa is a word from the Hebrew, it means filth, soiled, excrement bespattered. That's what my Hebrew dictionary says at home. Uh, and that's exactly what it is. It, it, and there's nothing else. It's, it's not that he's just dirty and he was changing the oil in his pickup and got a little oil on his shirt. Nope, he's excrement bespattered. To the Jew, uh, is that a clean uh, kosher kind of thing to have happen to you, let alone the high priest that's supposed to be representing you on behalf of the people to God? This would have been a horrifying image to them. Um, and it's gross enough for us, but um, that's the literal translation of the word filth. It's talking about something we'd all just say horrible. In fact, if you keep reading in my Hebrew dictionary, um, it's, it's excrement bespattered, not just vilely dirty, but offensively foul. That's the, the language of this story. Um, now it's interesting because Joshua, we don't see him shocked that he's wearing this kind of filth on his clothing. He, he doesn't seem surprised at all. Um, could it be that Joshua knew that that was a reality? Just like you and I know that we're sinners? Um, you know, we might be shocked that Joshua's being called that, but, but, um, but it seems like he knew that he was vile just in and of himself. It seems like that in the story, at least. He's just standing there wearing the clothing because that's what in fact is true. He is. See, this, this clothing that is um, vile and filthy it's a, a, a symbol of his own sinfulness. Check out the way the language goes in verse four. You know, the angel, um, uh, pardon me, he answered and spake unto those uh, that stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And then it says, behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. I will clothe thee with a uh, change of raiment change of clothes, and that's where he ties in the, the passing of the iniquity. That's the filthy garments. That's the sinful behavior of Joshua the high priest. Again, the people would have said, no way, not our high priest. We can't have a defiled, unkosher, you know, excrement bespattered uh, high priest. That's like embarrassing. We don't even wanna put him before God. But God is saying, that's the best you have to offer. It reminds me a little bit of you know, Paul's argument there in Romans chapter three, verse 10, where he makes it really clear. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are, are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace have they not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Who is Paul talking about here? The answer, us. Humanity, the whole world, we all fall short. There's no one righteous, not even one, Paul would say. So even the best they had to offer, Joshua, thy peace, he's standing there with filthy garments and, and the people would have said, how's that possible? And that means we're all toast. It sort of reminds me of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever heard an old timer say, I just like to live by the Sermon on the Mount. And when I hear that, I kind of chuckle because like, really, you do? Uh, if you live and die by the Sermon on the Mount, how are you doing? Um, because like things like this, like Jesus said stuff like this in Matthew five twenty. he said, for I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into <coughs> the kingdom of heaven. Man, unless you now, now, even as in the Old Testament, they would have thought of Joshua as the most pristine of all the, you know, religious people. And he's fallen short with his speckled clothing that's filthy. In the same way in the New Testament, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were thought to have been the, the cleanest of the clean, the most holy of the holy. Um, they were the guys that were so religious. They, they would walk around in their religious clothing and acting very religious. And, and most people thought, wow, we could never be as holy as the Pharisees, like way out of reach. Um, and, and remember, the Bible even tells us the Pharisees would take, pour out all their spices on the table and then they would start divvying it up. One speckle of pepper for God, nine speckles of pepper for me. And they'd divvy it all out to make sure they were tithing even the mint and the rue and all that stuff that they would give to the Lord one-tenth of all that they possessed. And so they had this outward appearance that, ooh, holy, holy, holy is the Pharisees. But then Jesus says this, unless your righteousness, and he's talking to the average dude, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and of the scribes, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you won't go to heaven. So the obvious question that people would be thinking in their minds is, well, then who gets to go to heaven? If you have to be as good as the Pharisees and the scribes, good luck with that. Those guys, they, they spend a whole living trying to be holier than everybody else. And yet Jesus is saying, yeah, you gotta exceed that. Good luck. But see, this is where the story of Joshua in the courtroom of heaven in Zechariah 3 sort of collides with this idea of your righteousness having to exceed that of Joshua thy priest and exceeding that of the, right, of the Pharisees and of the scribes. And you and I might say, man, we're also filthy. We've all sinned, like Romans told us. So we're all toast, except for this. The New Testament tells us we have a high priest who was tempted in all points like we've been tempted, yet without sin. See, there's good news. We, the church of Jesus Christ, we have a high priest that um, never sinned at all. And that's our high priest. Jesus Christ is our high priest, the Bible says. So in a sense, you say Joshua, man, of the Old Testament, he kind of fails this. But Jesus, he is 
our high priest. And, and the reason this works for us is a doctrine that you should know about. And I've done whole sermons on imputed righteousness. I love the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Um, we read about it in many passages, book of Romans, but also in 2 Corinthians chapter five. I love this passage. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, when you and I sin, we are separated from God. Jesus came to reconcile you back into good standing, good relationship with God. And so it says uh, to wit, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Check this out, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though uh, God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now, this final phrase is so cool. For he hath made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin, our high priest, Jesus, the perfect high priest, made him to be sin. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus, the sinless person, hung on the cross for the sins of the world, my sin and your sin was piled on Jesus. That's why he who knew no sin literally became sin, the embodiment of sin, because of our filth. If you would, our filth was poured on the perfect high priest. So he who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what imputed righteousness is. We are declared righteous because he is righteous, because he uh, took the hit, the penalty for us. Uh, man, I love that. Isaiah talks about the same language of Joshua in Zechariah 3. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath uh, have clothed me with garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as the bride adorns herself with jewels. Even in our story of the courtroom of heaven, you got the, the, the um, you know, person who's accused of sin, Joshua standing there in filthy garments. The Lord says, I'm gonna give you new clothing. I'm gonna take off the old filthy garment and I'm gonna replace it. Isaiah calls it the robe of righteousness. Isaiah also addresses the filthy garments there in Isaiah 64, um, six. He says, but we are all as an unclean thing and all our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Um, here he says, our righteousness are as filthy rags. Now the word filthy in this verse, I'm not even gonna tell you the Hebrew word for that. Um, it's too embarrassing. Brett, you weren't embarrassed to talk about the first one. Exactly. Um, well, what is it? Look it up. <laughs> I'm just gonna say it. Uh, but be that as it may, it's not a good word. The filthy word here is also um, something that would have shocked the Jews. Our righteousness, the best we have, it's, it's like a filthy rag and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities take us like the, like the wind takes us away. So this is our problem. We're, we're filthy, but good news, imputed righteousness where he takes off the old filth, puts on a new robe, but I kind of get ahead of myself. In this courtroom scene, you've got number one, you've got the judge, that's God. You've got the accused, that's Joshua. But thirdly, you have the prosecuting attorney 
and that is Satan himself. And he's pictured here in the courtroom scene. In fact, there in verse one, it says, there was Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Some of your margins might read about that word because there's an interesting Hebrew word that's uh, a word that also means um, to be an adversary. And even the name Satan, or as the Hebrews say, Satan, um, the Hebrews, that's where that word comes from, Satan, and it means accuser. He is the prosecuting, accusing attorney uh, in the courtroom of heaven. And there he is accusing uh, Joshua before God. Look at his filthy garments. And look what God does. I love this. Now you say, okay, so you got the prosecuting attorney, Satan, um, uh, and he's there to resist Joshua, as it says, or to be an adversary to Joshua, or to accuse. That's by name what Satan's doing. This shouldn't be new to us, by the way. Satan, that's one of his number one jobs that he likes to do is be an accuser. He loves to be the prosecuting attorney. Revelation 12, verse 10, it says this, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For check this out, it says, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So Satan accuses the brethren, that's you and me, the Christian church. And he said, look what Pastor Brett has done, Lord, as he accuses. Somehow Satan still has access to heaven. Remember the story of Job? As he accused Job, ah, Job's just good because you've never allowed me to mess with him. And the whole story of Job is about, you know, Satan and, and God having this sort of cosmic discussion about Job and how he would sin if, if the Lord, you know, allowed Satan to mess with him. And it's kind of an amazing deal, but it, it's again, that accusing nature of Satan. He just wants to mess with people. The Bible says, you know, not to be ignorant about Satan's devices. Let me just tell you a freebie here. When Satan talks and whispers an ear into your ear, um, when he talks to you about God, he always lies. But when Satan talks to God about you, he always tells the truth. Uh, and you say, but what's that all about? Well, he, you gotta understand this. When Satan whispers in your ear, what's he gonna say? He, he's gonna say, God's mad at you. You're a disappointment. You're such a sinner. Look at your horribles. And he accuses you day and night, just accusation. Look, what athy creaker sitting there in the congregation. Look at all these holy people around you and you're the sinner in the crowd. The lightning bolt's gonna come and strike you at any given moment because you're the sinner in the crowd. That's what Satan wants to make you believe, that you're worse than everybody else, that God's mad at you and disappointed in you and all this stuff, and he will always lie. And by the way, that's where so much comes from, things like depression and anxiety and fear and all this stuff where Satan just whispers in people's ear to where they just don't feel good enough. And, and, and you know, you hear people talk and nobody loves me. You're like, I love you, I care about you. Well, it's not enough. And, and they're just listening to the accusations of Satan. Um, that's something we have to do battle with, by the way. So when he talks to you about God, he's always lying. But when he talks to God about you, all he has to do is tell the truth. Uh, have you considered Brett, what a sinner he is? Did you see how fast he was going on the freeway? <laughs> and the Lord, you know, uh, you say, oh man, I'm guilty. And Satan's accusing me before God in heaven. I'm in big trouble. But it's an amazing thing. The Lord just says, hey, you guys, don't be shocked at this. That's who the devil is. He accuses the brethren and the sistren day and night, and he never gives up. 
Satan's dastardly. When you think about Satan, he likes to dangle sin in front of you and tempt you and lure you into sin. And then when you sin, um, he, he goes and, and says, look what Brett did before God. Um, it's like, you know, I had an aunt once who would have us over and as I remember as a kid and she'd, she'd serve us, you know, food and stuff and she'd always give tons of food. And, and this is the way it worked out. And some of you ladies are like this. You might kind of think about this and how it makes people feel. Um, uh, I'd go to their house and they'd say, oh, Brad, have some more potatoes. I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm, oh, no, you need more. Have some more apple pie. And, and as, you're, as they're just keep pushing it at you and you're just trying to choke it down. And then at the end, they're like, did you see how much bread ate? Wow, he just, what a pig, like, woo, wink, wink, wink. Like, it's, it's, it's like, um, I, it's kind of the way I had this one particular. But anyway, um, so you know who you are, you, you ladies. That, anyway, um, that's like Satan. He shoves sin down your throat and then he says, but did you see what he ate? That's, that's what Satan does. Uh, really important to understand. Um, well, you, so in the, in the courtroom scene, <laughs> we've got the judge, God, we've got the accused, Joshua, we have the prosecuting attorney, Satan. But lastly, good news, we have the defense attorney. And our defense attorney makes Perry Mason look like a pipsqueak. Um, ma'am, and our attorney is so good that he doesn't even have to say a word. Well, how does that work out? See, that's the thing. You say, where do I see? You say the defense attorney is Jesus. I don't see Jesus in the story. Well, it's actually an interesting little phrase of the Old Testament that you should know about. We've talked about this even in recent studies. When you come across the phrase, the angel of the Lord, that's an interesting phrase where it's talking about a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, when God became in, you know, uh, a man, that's, that's when God was born in the flesh, Jesus born in Bethlehem, that was his, his coming to this world. He lived in this world, died on the cross, was buried, rose again and ascended into heaven. That's, that's the coming of Jesus. And some people think that that's only when Jesus existed, but the Bible talks about the pre-existence of Jesus. In fact, the Bible even says Jesus was there at creation. The book of Colossians tells us that. We even see that hinted in Genesis chapter one, when it says, God says, let us make man in our image. Who's God talking to? The Holy Trinity, the, the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all one being. It's a mystery of the Trinity. But, but all that to say, Jesus was there at creation. That's important for you to know. So in the Old Testament, there are times where Jesus shows up and even seemingly in kind of a fleshly incarnate appearance. What do you mean, Brett? Can anybody remember, when did Jesus show up? Tell me one example of when Jesus showed up in the Old Testament, anybody? Uh, the book of Joshua, remember, the, yep. Uh, Abraham there in the tent in the heat of the day, two angels, and then one strange person came and Abraham falls down and worships this person who happens to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus and even calls him Lord, that is Jehovah, which is really strange. And uh, you say, how's that happening? That's, that's a pre-incarnate. What about the fiery furnace? Remember the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in there and then Nebuchadnezzar looked in and said, the third one looks like the son of God. That was a pre-incarnate appearance. So the theologians, we see that as a, uh, what we would call maybe a theophany or a Christophany of the Old Testament. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Here's the thing. Jesus pre-existed when he was born in Bethlehem. Does anybody remember, you know, we, we, we see Jesus as dying on the cross 
um, you know, back in, you know, 32 AD, uh, and, 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 you know, that's what happened. But, but the Bible actually handles that differently. He was called the lamb that was slain when? Anybody? Yes. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world were even created. He was still called the lamb that was slain. This starts to make your mind hurt because it has to do with God's existence outside of time. God is not limited to time and space and stuff like that. So when we kind of think of it as a linear thing, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and he died, you know, sort of retroactively for the Old Testament people and sort of, um, you know, he died uh, before we even came in sin. So he kind of died once for all. That's true. But the Bible also says that he was the lamb that was slain even before the foundations of the world were created. So when it comes to even this Old Testament story, you see this phrase, angel of the Lord. And by the way, 90% of the time, the word angel of the Lord or the phrase angel of the Lord is speaking of a Christophany or an appearance of Jesus. So you have here in this courtroom scene, you've got God the Father sitting, sitting on the throne. You've got the accused, Joshua the high priest. You've got Satan, the, defense, or the prosecuting attorney, but the defense attorney is the judge's son. Do you realize that's already a, a good thing for you and me? Uh, if I have a defense attorney who's the, the son of the judge, and not only is he just the son, the judge in the Bible constantly says, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. And he's my attorney. That's really good. Well, what's he gonna do? Is he gonna matlock it up and say, I object and, and, and have this big courtroom thing? Nope. Your attorney doesn't even have to say a word. Why? Because he's standing there as the lamb that had been slain for the sins of the world. He doesn't have to say a word. Because God the Father sees Jesus standing there, standing, as it says here in verse one. Did you see what the angel of the Lord is doing in this? We only see two mentions here. In verse one, it says the angel was standing before, um, Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord. And verse five, it says, and the angel of the Lord stood by. What is he just standing there by? The reason he does that is because he did it all. He is our defense attorney and he's a living, standing defense. <clears throat> in fact, we read about this in 1 John chapter two. It says this, my little children, these uh, things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The word advocate there could be like an attorney, defense attorney, um, with Jesus Christ, who's the righteous. It's funny how the, the judge is called the righteous, but our attorney is also called the righteous. That's also good news. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I love that word propitiation. It's, um, it's another fancy doctrine world. Like we, we talked about, you know, how we've been given imputed righteousness well, the propitiation, that word just means that the word propitiation sort of speaks of a substitute on your behalf. You might even use the word substitution along with satisfaction. If you owe a debt, to have your debt satisfied or paid, um, the word is propitiation. Jesus is the payment and the satisfaction of what you and I owed so that the judge could put the gavel down and say, case dismissed. That's what propitiation is. Jesus stands there as the one who died on the cross for your sins, was paying your penalty. And so the judge says, he's the propitiation for your sin. So not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
That's why the author of Hebrews says there in Hebrews 12 too, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher or perfecter, as some of your translations say of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. There in the courtroom of heaven, our defense attorney, he paid the price willingly, went joyful even, despising the same. Um, so what does God see in the courtroom when you, you look at it from God's perspective? Well, we know he sees Satan accusing us in filthy rags, Jesus as the lamb who had been slain, his only begotten son that died for the filthy little dude's sins. That's good news for you and me. You and I are in good shape. Why? Because what we've done, nope. Because of how good we've, or how sorry we are, nope. Um, the punishment was already paid because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. You ever heard of that term fighting fire with fire? That came from back in the old pioneering days when the wagon trains were settling and moving toward west. They'd travel for days at a time the, across the grassy plains. And um, you know, the mountain ranges were difficult, the rattlesnakes and the, you know, being attacked by Indians and stuff. They had a lot of things they were worried about. But one of the things, their greatest fears was lightning. Because in the middle of summer, if they were going like in the heat summer years, um, the, 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 the grass would grow and then get really thick and then it would all die and be like, uh, like just tinder that was ready to go off and lightning would strike and the prairie would just get on fire. There's stories of entire wagon trains, being everybody dying because the fire raged. But eventually they figured out how to do battle against this. If they saw a fire coming or a lightning striking, sometimes even before a fire started, the, the, the people would light a fire downwind of their, of their wagons. They'd light a fire and let it start burning. And they'd burn, let it burn and burn. And while the fire was getting closer to them, their fire was moving away downwind so that when it came time, they'd move their horses and their wagons and their people to the area that had already been scorched because you can't burn something twice. And there they would stand on that scorched area and they would be safe as the rest of the area would burn all around them. Um, and so in a sense, Jesus fought fire with fire, didn't he? He took the heat for you and me so that we wouldn't have to. Um, you know, that's how Jesus declares our sins as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103.12. That's how the Bible can say something so amazing like in Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Why? Those that are in Christ, that's safe ground. The pain that Jesus endured and went through the death on the cross produces safe ground for you and I to stand on because he took the heat already. Um, so how are our filthy rags dealt with in this courtroom of heaven? It's not just God saying, take the stinky rags off. It's, it's, there, was a, there was a price paid. There was a work that was done in the courtroom of heaven to make those clothes be able to change. For you to move from your filthy garments to your robe of righteousness, it's because of what Jesus did. We are sick and we stink. And if we don't recognize it, we're in trouble. I hope you recognize, recognizing you're a sinner is the first part that you need to have. Do you understand that? I'm reminded of um, uh, summer camp. I was a camp director and these little girls, uh, first, second, and third grade, there was 300 kids, but this little team of girls, they were um, unusually decked out for little girls at a kid's camp. 
Um, I don't know what got into these mothers, but they sent these little girls with makeup and glitter and uh, ballerina outfits and stuff. And these girls, we'd be doing tug of war in the mud and these little girls out there in their little petunia outfits or whatever. And, and, uh, but this was the funniest part of that. Uh, all of us at camp guys, we were like, when those little girls started coming into the room, you'd, you'd smell, it smelled horrible. We're like, what's that smell? And we couldn't quite figure it out. They looked amazing, these little petunias walking around, but, uh, but they just kind of stank. And we finally asked the, the counselors, we're like, do you know what's going on with your team? Like, why does your team smell? Like at dinner time, it's like hard to even eat your food. Like, and they just said, no, we don't know what they do stink. We just don't know what, you know. And, and um, we were just scratching our heads. Well, finally, it got so bad. Like the fourth night of camp, finally, I just got the camp nurse and a few of the directors. And I said, you guys, when the little girls are at dinner, you should go, you guys need to look what's going on in the room there. We gotta figure out what's going on. And I was thinking, we can't send these little girls home to their parents smelling like this. Um, <laughs> and so, so sure enough, the camp, camp uh, nurse and everything went in there and they figured out what the problem was. The first day at camp, we went to the beach and had a bunch of fun uh, out in the sand. Well, these little girls found a bunch of dead sea life. They found this fish that was like about a foot and a half long and they found a dead crab and an old starfish and some seaweed and they pulled that all in and snuck it back to camp and stuck it in all their luggage. And see, it was like 90 degrees and these little girls, this fish was like marinating there in their, in their little ballerina outfit. Uh, um, and, and it just, it was the worst smell you ever did smell. It was so bad, it made your eyes blurry, like when you'd see these little girls. And, um, and uh, we were able to, you know, get the laundry and get it all fixed up. But, um, but you know, I, I kind of liken the sinner who doesn't know they stink to that. You can, put, you can put lipstick on and glitter and your little fancy outfit and everything, and you might look really cute, but you stink. And it's called sin. And the Bible uses that kind of imagery uh, to talk about it. And good news, the Lord says, I'll wash you and I'll clean you and I'll give you new clothes. And it's, it's so much better. And it has to do not just with what you're wearing, but where you're going. Are you saved? Are you going to heaven? Or are you gonna pay for the stinky sins that you've committed? And the Lord says, I'll take that. When you get into the courtroom of heaven, you can either have God with his bow ready to go and the sword ready to go and judgment and wrath or you can repent of your sins and you can say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a stinky sinner. And you repent of your sins and the Bible says he'll wash you clean and robe you in righteousness and he'll say, enter into heaven, thou good and faithful servant. It's a choice you have. For the Christian, this is a, a great vision of the courtroom of heaven because just like Joshua the high priest who was a sinner just like everybody else, he gets a new robe and he, he, he gets to heaven. And you can have that too. So as the Christians, man, we should be rejoicing. For the non-Christian, make sure that you repent of your sins. Don't go another day with the fishy, stinky, sinful life. The Lord says, I'll clean you of that. And I've done everything that needs to happen. Joshua doesn't do anything in this story. He just stands there. God did everything for Joshua, just like he will do for you. Well, Brett, are you saying you can just confess a prayer and accept Jesus? Yes. Can I, by the way, warn you about pastors and ministries that like to add to that? And they'll, they'll, this is a dead giveaway when they say, you can't just pray a prayer and go to heaven. You can't just confess Christ and go to heaven. Well, then Paul was very forgetful then when he wrote Romans chapter 10, verse nine and 10, when he was talking about what constitutes salvation. He should have said more. Paul, you big knucklehead, you left it out. What do you mean? Well, when he said, if you wanna be saved, you confess with your mouth 
and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the grave, you will be saved. That's confession with the mouth, belief in the heart. That's not going to church. That's not being good all the time. And like I said before, like these, these pastors, I think some of them well-meaning because they kind of struggle. They don't really understand what the Bible's actually teaching, that Joshua does nothing to save himself. Um, but actually he's saved by God's grace through faith. Just like the Bible says over and over again, but people are so tempted to add, well, yeah, you're saved by grace, but you can't just say a prayer. You gotta live your life for Christ and you gotta be discipled and you gotta start doing better. And oh yes, there's nuances where if you are saved, you'll start seeing good fruit and faith without works is dead. I totally understand that. But to add to the work of salvation, that's a huge mistake. So don't let anybody tell you that, that you, know, um, that you gotta do more. And uh, you know, some of these pastors that sound very sanctimonious and very holy, watch out, that's a, a pitfall. We're saved by God's grace through faith. And that's this robing of righteousness. Joshua did nothing in the story to, to receive that robe of righteousness. That's how you're saved too, by God's grace through faith. Isn't that good news? Man, I think it's great news. Lord, how thankful we are for such a glorious truth that you choose to robe us in righteousness, Lord, unworthy um, sinners, that you ask us to repent of our sins, to confess with our mouth and to believe in our hearts, your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room, everyone watching online right now, that Lord, we'd all have repented of our sins and accepted the work of the cross. Lord, if not, may you just soften hearts and have people accept you and believe and follow after your truth. Lord, we're saved by your grace through faith. I thank you for that. Lord, I pray for those that are always accused by the enemy, that they feel guilty all the time or not good enough or don't measure up. May they remember this story where Joshua was there in his filthy garments and you just robed him. He didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. You just did it. I pray that people would be mindful of this truth of your word, that you robe us in our righteous robes and you take away our filthy garments. So Lord, thank you for that. We give you all glory on this sunny Sunday. We pray that your light would shine in our hearts as we just remember the glorious work of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.